Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. We've got to figure out a way to elevate this system if this system called representative democracy that's had a 243-year run is going to be able to continue. I mean, we got to recognize that no matter what happens out of this election, there's still going to be deep divides in this nation. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Welcome to the official fourth year of Pantsuit Politics. We are so excited to have celebrated this milestone, and we will be celebrating it in person with everyone who's coming to the finale of our Nuance Nation tour in Dallas on Friday night. We cannot wait. It is going to be a big and I'm sure lively crowd. We have lots of great programming scheduled, including an interview with MJ Hager, who's running for the United States Senate. So get your tickets and come see us in Dallas on Friday. We're going to be joined today by a very special guest in our main segment. We're spending a few minutes with Governor Steve Bullock of Montana, a very accomplished governor in his own right and a candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. Before that, we have a lot of news to get to, including just a couple of quick highlights of things going on, and then we're going to dive in to what's happening around the 2020 race. 
First up, let's catch up on impeachment. The House has now released Yovanovitch and McKinley's transcripts from their testimonies. Now, we're going to discuss these more in depth on Friday's episode because they just came out like two hot minutes ago. And Beth, you're going to tackle them on the nightly nuance this week. But we got a lot of people scheduled to testify this week, and we expect almost none of them to show up. The name that is probably most prominent in the midst of those folks who are supposed to come and don't plan to is John Eisenberg, who is a lawyer for the National Security Council. And he's the person, allegedly, who made the decision to put the notes of the Ukraine call between the president and Volodymyr Zelensky in a more classified server. And so Congress is very interested in what he has to say about why he made that decision, but they're probably going to have to go to court to get him to say it to them. We also have an interesting aside from the president over the weekend while he was talking with reporters on the White House lawn. As you probably recall from our budget conversation, government funding runs out on November 21st. So we're going to need to figure out a way to fund the government past that date. And a reporter asked, basically, will you hold the funding hostage because of the impeachment? And at first he was like, no, no, no. And then he was like, oh, I don't know. Everything's up when we talk about negotiation. So we'll just have to talk about the negotiation when it happens, which not very encouraging. It is hard for me to imagine that he would actually harm Senate Republicans to that extent, because I think that's what happens, right? This is really bad for vulnerable Republicans up for election in 2020 if we have a government shutdown. And he really needs those folks. So I imagine Mitch McConnell will talk him down from this. But you never know, because when he gets an idea like that planted, Mm -hmm. it does seem to take on a life of its own. I mean, he does not care about the Senate Republicans. I don't think. I mean, wasn't there a story recently that Mitch McConnell was like, stop attacking Senate Republicans? I mean, you saw it in the report from The New York Times this weekend about his tweets. They read all 11,000 tweets. And the person he really likes to praise is himself. And over half of his tweets were attacks. So if you're just following the through line here, he loves himself and he attacks anybody who gets in his way. So, you know, if he decides that shutting the government down is the best thing for him, he already has the longest shutdown in history, then I don't know what's to stop him. It's just a matter of him remembering that they are in the long run really important for his personal interests too. But who knows? Long-term thinking. I don't think the long run is his strong suit. Right. We talked several weeks ago about Saudi Aramco, the most profitable company in the world, is owned by the Saudi Arabian government. And we told you at the time that the plan was for Saudi Aramco to go public. And that is happening. It is being listed on the Saudi Stock Exchange. It's thought to be worth about $1.5 trillion. This is pretty important for the country. Unemployment in Saudi Arabia is over 10% right now. And the expectation is that money from the IPO will go into new industries that the government invests in to create new jobs for Saudi Arabia citizens. The question is, are investors going to be deterred by the fact that this company is one of the world's biggest polluters and that the Saudi Arabian government murdered a U.S. journalist not all that long ago and has still never been held accountable for it? I mean, this is a part of the crown prince efforts to diversify the Saudi economy, which is incredibly dependent on this company and the oil reserves. 
makes them vulnerable when it comes to attacks, as we saw with the attack on one of the Aramco facilities a few months ago. I mean, I just to me, it's so weird to talk about Aramco to say, you know, to say, oh, it's it would be the most valuable company above Microsoft because it's not a company like to put it on a stock exchange implies that it's like Microsoft and it's not. It's the Saudi government. It's like buying stock in the Saudi government, a government that pollutes, a government that oppresses, a government that was instrumental and continues to be instrumental in the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, a country that's run by a man who, like you just said, was instrumental in the murder of a U.S. journalist. So, I mean, I don't I don't know if there will be any major hesitation on the part of investors, my cynical instinct is no. I mean, the United States government has has enforced no consequences on the Saudi government because of their terrible policies or involvement in the murder of Khashoggi. But, you know, it's still just it's just weird. It's not a regular company. And like the thought of owning stock in it it's like the thought of owning stock in Saudi Arabia itself. I would like to understand, even setting aside the climate change and Khashoggi concerns, what are the ethical issues that investors would have to think through to be able to own stock in a company like this that's so attached to the Saudi Arabian government? It seems like this is just rife with potential conflicts and the kind of corruption that Throughout the world, everyone says they're interested in combating. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how this goes. We just wanted to put it on your radar. We also have the announcement of a new acting secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. Chad Wolf will be the fifth such individual to serve in that post in the Trump administration. I had to look this up just to review. John Kelly was our first DHS secretary. He was confirmed when he moved over to the chief of staff role. Elaine Duke served as the acting DHS secretary, followed by Kirsten Nielsen, who was confirmed by the Senate. She was followed by Kevin McLeanan who's currently the acting DHS secretary, although there's some confusion about when his stop date is and the start date for Chad Wolf is. Chad Wolf served as Kirsten Nielsen's chief of staff. He has been at the Department of Homeland Security for the entirety of its existence and is described as a very competent person. He comes in at a rough time for DHS. I am so tired of hearing the word acting. I don't know what it means anymore. Why do we have an acting chief of staff that's not even a Senate-confirmed position? And I think that this, you know, this bubbles to the top of sort of things we're all paying attention to every once in a while. But I think it's so detrimental. And honestly, it's like I feel like it's a huge and unchecked expansion of presidential power. I mean, he says, I like acting because it gives me flexibility. With love, you're not a king. You're not supposed to have flexibility. You're the leader of a co-equal branch of government that's supposed to be working together with Congress, in part by them confirming the people holding these really important positions, not to mention that when you're acting like that, like it it takes away some of the stability and independence of any cabinet position, which is supposed to be really leading, not but he doesn't want people leading. He wants people to be you know, loyal at all costs. And so I can I understand why in particularly this 
this position, this organization, DHS, not everybody's lining up for that job because it would be tough enough if you're just talking about Department of Labor, but one that's so in his radar because of immigration and dealing with so many other important things. I mean, what a toxic place to be in. 19 of 75 leadership positions in the Department of Homeland Security are vacant or filled by someone who is acting in their role right now. There was a really excellent editorial in the Washington Post from former DHS Secretary Jay Johnson about how we need a Senate-confirmed leader Mm -hmm. who has a tenure that lasts more than a year in that role. And he said if he were in the role today, two things would keep him up at night. The reemergence or the possibility for reemergence of ISIS in the Middle East, given all of the factors contributing to destabilization there now, including our own actions and election security, because we're coming into 2020 and it's clear that Russia is undeterred in its efforts to influence our elections. And he said, you know, exactly what you were just talking about, Sarah, immigration has so engulfed what DHS is under President Trump that we forget all of the other priorities this person has. And immigration, despite not making headlines every single day, is still in a crisis state. Not only have we had almost a million people apprehended at the border this year, including record numbers of unaccompanied minors, we also have an uptick in suicide among CBP employees. Courts has just published that 115 CBP employees died by suicide between 2007 and 2019, making them the highest rate of suicides among all law enforcement agencies. And so there's just a lot of work to be done in these agencies, really important work. And it's hard to see how having one acting person after another will accomplish that. So we also have big 2020 milestones here that we wanted to talk about. So Friday night was the Iowa Democratic Party's Liberty and Justice Celebration. Used to be the Jefferson Jackson Dinner, but we don't call things that anymore. The fall fundraiser is a huge event. It's three months till the Iowa caucus. We're a year away from the election. So it's really seen as a kickoff to the final push. We had we had a very surprising dinner because Beto supporters were there. They'd flown all over. They were setting up signs. There's all this reporting that they were out in the drizzling rain getting everything ready. And then just hours before the dinner was supposed to kick off, he dropped out of the race. I watched Showtime's The Circus last night, and they did such an, a good job of showing that really like intense lead up to the Liberty and Justice celebration and the crowds for everyone and the Beto people gathered And then his speech and the deflation among his supporters and just how tense and strange this was. I feel bad for him. I feel bad for all these people who were fully invested, were ready for this event that I think a lot of campaigns pin their hopes on. They want to move momentum. They want everything to start looking different after this. And it just didn't happen. I wonder kind of what what was the impetus for him to make this seemingly last minute decision. I loved this piece that Politico had about him that pointed out that a year ago he was polling third behind Biden and Sanders, Mm. that he raised $6.1 million in the first days of his campaign. And here's how Politico described what happened here. The proximate cause of O'Rourke's fall was not in the unorthodox things he did, his meandering solo road trip through the Southwest, the live streaming of his dentist visit, even the infamous born-to-be-in-it Vanity Fair cover, which he later said he regretted, 
all happened before O'Rourke cratered. Rather, it was everything he didn't do, rendering him an object lesson in the familiar limits of charisma, the liability of high expectations, and the importance of organization, or as O'Rourke might say, of having one shit together. For too long and irreparably, he did not. While other candidates were assembling campaign staffs and volunteer armies in early nominating states, O'Rourke lacked the infrastructure necessary to organize his own supporters. Lawmakers and major Democratic donors could not get calls returned. When the campaign's skeletal staff promised to reach out, it sometimes forgot. And it went on to describe all these apologies he had to deliver specifically to people in Iowa because the campaign wasn't organized enough. And even though they later brought in a campaign manager who's really good and really well-respected, they just could not pull it together. And as the money started to run out, he did not want to consider laying people off. He just decided to fold it up. Mm. This goes to my sort of campaign soapbox that I get on, which is running a presidential campaign is reflective of how you will run the country. I think that's been borne out with the Trump administration. And it's hard. It's hard work. It's such a combination of HR and organization and vision and management and being able to stick to your plan when there's an enormous amount of outside pressure and responding to outside events. I thought that when the El Paso shooting happened, Beto did a good job of responding to that and sort of it seemed like he was gaining momentum after that because of his response, but he just didn't translate it into anything. It seems like he has the ability to translate into social media moments really well. It's just that conversion from Mm -hmm. here's something that goes viral to and here's something that sticks and actually motivates people to take action. And that's really that's really tough. I think to your point about the way campaigns get organized, the thing I'm observing and I think about every time you talk about this is that I feel like it requires this really delicate balance of something that is about you and also not at all about you. Mm -hmm. And from the beginning in both campaigns, I think Beto is about Beto. And I don't mean that in a really derogatory way. But it was always hard for me to see what exists beyond this charming dude. Yeah, the limits of charisma, just like the article said. Yeah. Well, the other big news in the 2020 space this week is that Senator Warren released a medium post describing her plan for Medicare for all. And so we thought we would walk through that plan with you because it is undoubtedly something that's going to soak up a lot of time as other candidates respond to it. So there's a lot here. I mean, this is this is not just her Medicare for all plan. She's released the Medicare for all plan, but the criticism she constantly got was, how are you going to pay for that? <laughs> so this is the how I'm going to pay for it plan. And then at the end, she says, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, by the way, I've got another plan coming on how we're going to transition to this, because I think that's another question that I hear just everyday people say and a lot of our listeners say, even if she does it, even if she can pay for it, how's this going to work with so many people working in the medical industry? So apparently that's coming as well. This plan starts off with her 
sort of acknowledging the Medicare for All plan and her non-negotiables and why she's motivated by that. On her website, she goes into like the story of her, uh, the effect of her father's heart attack on her family finances. She she goes back to what she really focuses in a lot in her speeches about this, which is how many families end up in bankruptcy because of medical expenses. So she says her non-negotiables is that no American should die or go bankrupt because of health care. She says we're going to stop with the GoFundMes and rationing insulin and choosing between medicine and groceries and that every American should be able to see the doctors they need and get recommended treatments without having to think about neck warts. No for-profit insurance company should be able to stop anyone from seeing the expert they need. And I thought this was a really good point. I haven't heard her sort of harp on in the debates, but I think is beneficial, which is the idea of like, why would it be more important for Americans to choose their insurance company than to choose their doctors? I think the important thing is that they get to choose the doctors they go to, and often they're prevented from doing that because of insurance companies. So that was a big sort of jumping off point to the healthcare as a human right. Okay, now let's talk about how I'm going to pay for this. Her plan eliminates private health insurance completely, replaces it with free government health coverage for all Americans, including long-term care, audio, vision, dental, and mental health benefits. So a completely comprehensive system administered by the government. She says that this will cost $20.5 trillion over 10 years. You kind of start with $52 trillion and work your way down from there. Because her big thing is, she says, we already spend $52 trillion. So we can keep spending $52 trillion the way we're spending it right now with the middle class paying for a lot of it. Or we can shift the entirety of the $52 trillion. So she gets to the $20.5 trillion by sort of subtracting what we're already spending. And so where are we going to have to make up the difference about the cost after that? That additional cost is a third of what the federal government is projected to spend over the next decade in total. So this would add a lot to what the government is spending. And her first principle on paying for it is that people who already spend a lot of money on health care are going to continue to spend a lot of money on health care. They're just going to spend it with someone else. So employers would pay the government a similar amount to what they currently spend with private insurance companies on employees' health care. That's approximately $8.8 trillion of her plan. So, and I think this is another interesting component of the employer part, which is she her, her basic argument is, I'm going to take it down a little bit now, and over the long term, 10 years plus, they're going to end up paying less than they would if they were continuing to pay for private insurance benefits for their employees. I don't know, you know, how true that is, but that's her plan. Yeah, she doesn't explain how that is to be, but that is what she says. She also says state and local governments who are currently covering their state workers and low income residents under the Medicaid program would put in about $6.1 trillion. And then we have tax increases. So her wealth tax proposal on billionaires was supposed to be about 3%. Now she's doubling that to 6% annual tax on net worth over a billion dollars. She proposes creating a tax on financial transactions like stock trades to come up with another $800 billion. She says we are going to enforce our tax laws in ways that we haven't done before to bring in an additional $2 trillion in taxes that otherwise would be owed but uncollected. She talks about how she would like to overhaul our immigration laws to broaden the tax base so we would have additional taxes paid by immigrants who are new Americans. She wants to cut military spending by $800 billion. And then there's kind of a component of this that is about 
a belief that this system is just going to be profoundly more efficient than our current system. And so she makes assumptions about how it's going to cost less to administer this. We're going to keep administrative expenses for the entire system at 2.3%, which is where Medicare is today that we would be able to put all this downward pressure on drugs. And there's there's a lot of specificity around the pharmaceutical aspect, which I think we should probably cover in like a five things you need to know about drugs at some point, because it's it's hard to understand without some background in that industry. But basically, she is contemplating lowering spending on generic drugs by 30% and on brand name drugs by 70%. So her estimates are much more aggressive than one of the big white papers out there right now about what a system like this would cost, the Urban Institute released a detailed assessment of Medicare for All and thought it would require $34 trillion in additional federal spending, quite a bit higher than Senator Warren's plan. But that's the gist of it. It's going to cost a lot more money, but she says it is going to save a lot of money in the long term and that some of the big payers are shifting not the amount they're already putting into the system, but shifting it to the government instead of these private insurance companies. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Well, when the plan first came out, the reporting and was and still is pretty scoffy. I don't know if that's a word. There's lots of scoffing. There's lots of eye rolling. There's lots of this makes her politically vulnerable. And I definitely had the reaction of like, I think this is important. I think this is what the country needs. I don't know if we're up for this political lift because it's such a massive change to our system. So I I went in really highly skeptical. And then as I read it, I, I, I mean, I remain skeptical. I remain incredibly worried that our politically divided nation is up for this level of change. But I do respect how she goes after something that I think often gets missed in this, which is healthcare cost. And I do like that she goes after reimbursement rates. And I do like that she goes after nonprofit hospital CEOs' salaries, which have skyrocketed. Our healthcare costs more. Same procedures, same scans cost two to three times more than they do in other industrialized nations. And we have to deal with that if we're going to deal with the cost of healthcare. And so I at least appreciate the acknowledgement that, like, one of the ways we're going to have to pay for this is to deal with what these things cost. And I hate that that turns into she wants to ration health care. I think it's so short sighted and so ridiculous. Like, I know what some of the doctors in my area make, and I think it's outrageous. So I, I appreciate her sort of getting to that. I don't I still worry about how big a political lift this is. And I like I just wonder, like, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I have a little bit of respect for Bernie. That's like, you know what? We have to have some discretion. We don't have to sort out every single X, Y, and Z of these plans to decide if this is what the American people want. And I really resent and why we have Donald Trump as president. Like, we have to go through this level of specificity because it's just, it seems so irrelevant by the time it gets through Congress and an election and all the other, you know, lobbying efforts that... And not just her plan, but even like the the well, how much is it going to cost? Well, who the heck knows? Like she even says in a part of it, like nobody can tell the future. That's why the estimates on how much this plan or how much Medicare for all would cost vary so much depend on who doing the estimates because we can't tell the future yet. So I don't know. I just kind of struggle with the whole conversation at this point in the game. And I worry that she does bring on more liabilities than strengths by engaging in this conversation. There are a bunch of threads here, right? There's the conversation about whether this was a politically smart thing to do. And I don't know if it is or isn't. It's totally on brand for her. I I do appreciate that she says, now here's how we're going to do it. I'm not hiding the ball. And I think it is really important 
for all of the Americans who are very excited about Medicare for all to think about exactly what that means, not just in terms of, hey, I get to go to the doctor and not have a copay and not spend a huge portion of my paycheck on premiums or not have, you know, there's a there's a lot of me, me, me in a lot of these conversations that is important. Absolutely. And also not the entirety of the discussion. And so I think it is good to have some specificity about what would this mean and what would it require? And I think it is good to see her saying things like, I understand that rural hospitals are differently situated, and so there needs to be a separate plan for them. Teaching hospitals are a different thing. I do not claim to have the expertise to talk through how this would affect every constituency that would have their basic understanding of how they operate overhauled by this plan. I've said in enough renewal meetings for employer-sponsored insurance plans to have a have a good sense, I think, of how big of a shift this is and how many industries would be impacted by it. And I am very curious to see that transition plan as I think about the many, many people employed by insurance companies, by insurance brokers, all the efficiencies that are baked into the ability to pay for this come at a cost as well. And the optimism throughout the plan, I think, is stunningly high, but also on brand for her. And I get that that's what attracts a lot of people to her. To me, the fundamental question that isn't being answered right now is not, can we do this, but should we do it? I think a lot of the Democratic primaries feel like you have the optimist on stage saying, this is the right thing to do, and we are going to do it, and everything else be damned. And then you have the people on stage who are kind of like, settle down, kids. You know, we, we, we are the realists. We can't get this through Congress. We got to settle for something that's a little better, but not everything we want because life isn't fair all the time. And I just don't think that's a very healthy discussion. I think there's a place for that dose of, hey, not everyone agrees with this. How are we going to get what looks to me like lots of laws through Congress if we're talking about adjustments to the tax code, adjustments to military spending, adjustments to immigration law, and adjustments to health care. But let's just assume that all of that is completely possible. We as a nation come together and decide we really want this and we can do it. We're Americans. You know, we're going to do this. My question is, should we do this? Because a lot of the problems that exist in our healthcare system today are the result, and her plan acknowledges this, of bigness, of hospital mergers, of massive pharmaceutical companies. And I understand that sometimes you need bigness in the government to counter bigness in the private sector. But the most compelling part of her plans to me are the parts that go to breaking up some of that bigness, where she talks about using the FTC to slow down and unwind some of these health system mergers, because we need more competition among providers. We need more transparency about what services are being provided and at what cost. And I see in her plan so many ideas that I do agree with, and I just think working with some of those ideas and seeing what they do to healthcare before we take this leap, what happens at the end of 10 years? We cannot predict not only what the costs of healthcare are going to be over those 10 years or what the needs of the American population are going to be. I was just reading, not to take us on too much of a tangent, but about how 
measles can give your immune system amnesia, basically. Like if you get measles, it can start to unwind some of your other immunities. So we have just a lot of unpredictable stuff coming at us in the healthcare space over the next 10 years. We also have no idea what the other pressures on our government and our spending will be. And not everything is about money, but everything is about priorities. I care a lot about those two goals she articulated. I don't want people having to go on GoFundMe to pay for medical care. I don't want anybody to die or go bankrupt because of medical care. I think she has some really good components here that do not require this fundamental system overhaul. Um, But I'm going to keep listening and I am trying to be really open and to not just start attacking the math because that would be my instinctive thing to do. Just struggle so bad with we have big problems. We need big solutions. And also. We have to beat Donald Trump and our democracy is limping along we can't agree on almost anything and i'm just i don't i don't know how to bring those things together and like reading through this plan and thinking yeah 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 but like to be that person on the stage who says but we can't get anything through congress right now and i mean i know some of her answer is we have to get money out of politics. We build the momentum through the campaign. And that's the that's her top priority. Her top priority when she is elected, you know, according to interviews I've heard, is not pass Medicare for all. It's to pass fundamental reforms to the way money functions inside our government. So I, I don't know. I just I struggle with a person who wants big systematic change and who feels really pessimistic about the current status of our politics. And so those, it's like an it's like an angel and a devil on my shoulder and they're always fighting. A lot of the big problems that we have have resulted from small shifts over time that have exploded. Right. When you start eroding things like antitrust enforcement and that happens kind of gradually and it happens a little bit quietly as to the whole American citizenry. Right. Who are just trying to live our lives and go on about our day. Those things really add up. I believe that we can have big systematic change through looking at those things that have added up to these current problems and trying to address them. My fear is that if you say, well, we have big problems, so we need big solutions, and it's just big after big after big, we're just going to have a whole new class of problems under a system like this. And look, I accept that that's true under any system. Any change that you make always comes at a price and always has externalities. Some of them you anticipate and you say, well, it's worth it. And some of them you do not anticipate. I really struggle with taking on this commitment when we are not very good at governing right now, when we are not very good at our democracy. And I'm not saying... Well, gosh, if we would only elect the the perfect people or the right party people, all of this would go away. I just don't think that any entity that gets this enormous, this is enormous, is going to be well positioned to meet all of the needs it's trying to meet and to sustainably, ethically carefully, with a sense of compassion, navigate the future. 
Now, I could be wrong about that, but that's why I look at this and say, you know what, even if we can, let's just look at her list and say, yes, we can do it. I don't think we should do it this way. I think there are ways to get to those goals that don't go this far. I mean, please remember that my original or new, new original platform is not make big things to get systematic change. It's to just go back and undo everything Reagan did. That's all. That's really my number one party platform right now. I just want to go back and bit by bit undo everything he did. And I think that would be a really, really, really strong start. So that's my party platform. That's a tough place to be in today's Democratic Party, you know. And I think that's an interesting transition point as we talk to someone who has been discounted as far too centrist for the Democratic Party, Governor Steve Bullock of Montana. But before we, have to we do, do our that, compliments. <laughs> we have to pass out some compliments. And I just want you to know that we both identified one compliment today. And so I've come up with another one. Sarah, you go ahead and take the ultimate compliment. Yeah, because they're Republicans and you're the newest Democrat. So I'm the oldest Democrat. So I get to I get to compliment the Republicans this time in the state of Oklahoma, who is releasing 462 people from prison. This is the largest single day mass commutation in U.S. history. The parole board unanimously approved the commutations after considering 814 cases. And the Republican governor, Kevin Stitt, said that his office will process the recommendations for final approval. Even better, this comes after Oklahoma voters approved making simple drug possession and low-level property crimes misdemeanors instead of felonies. Releasing these folks will save the great state of Oklahoma almost $12 million. Well done, Oklahoma. Well done, Republicans of Oklahoma. I don't know how I feel about you pulling rank like that, but um, I'm going to move on here to compliment Apple. Apple is going to spend $2.5 billion to help with housing in California, recognizing that Apple owes a lot to California and that California is in an unsustainable place with the cost of housing. So that $2.5 billion breaks down like this. A billion dollars for the Affordable Housing Investment Fund. This is an open line of credit to state and private entities to develop and build new affordable housing. That's right. It is a line of credit. So Apple's going to get this money back probably with some additional money. And it says that it's going to use that money to reinvest in future projects like this. There'll be a billion-dollar first-time homebuyer mortgage assistance fund. $300 million of Apple-owned land is going to be made available to construct affordable housing on. $150 million for a Bay Area housing fund. And then $50 million additional dollars to support vulnerable populations. Apple is doing this in partnership with some community-based organizations and with Governor Newsom's office. Tim Cook has said that he thinks Governor Newsom is the right partner to work with on this, and he doesn't think the public sector can handle this problem alone. And I think he's right about that. We'll take about two years for this initial round to be fully executed, and it will depend on the availability of projects and contractors, lots of details to fill in here. But this is a big commitment. It follows commitments from Facebook, a billion dollars, Google, a billion dollars, and $500 million from Microsoft for affordable housing efforts in Seattle. And so we have tech companies trying to do better, but Apple characteristically is putting in more money and kind of more thoughtfulness about how this money is to be used and and really focusing on California. So well done, Apple. I think this is really great. 
I read an article the other day that was sort of laying out some of the neighborhood by neighborhood confrontations and the people putting boulders on the sidewalk to prevent people from putting up tents and just sort of like like the lack of empathy because people feel so sort of personally attacked and frustrated with the housing crisis and the homelessness crisis in the Bay Area in Los Angeles. And it's just like it's not only a humanitarian crisis, it's like a soul crisis. I feel like it really wears on pay- people. It leads to some like real nastiness that I think is toxic for everybody. And so I'm really glad that they are putting money forward and that they have a good partner in the state. And I hope they really start to solve this because I think it is incredibly, incredibly detrimental to everyone involved. I really agree with that characterization of a soul crisis. There is a a local draft ordinance in the news in Covington, Kentucky, near where I live, that would pretty well put some of our homeless shelters in a position where they can't operate anymore because of that sort of not in my backyard sentiment. Mm. They don't want them within so many feet of schools and universities. And I just think like if we are riding out of operation shelters, what are we doing? Like what, Mm -hmm. what do we value if we don't value our fellow human beings having a place to sleep at night in the middle of the winter? Mm-hmm. And I hope that a company like Apple coming out and saying this is important can help shift that culture. <clears throat> or you at Amazon, just saying. Up next, Governor St- Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your bra plums solved. 
Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Bullock. Okay, well, we wanted to welcome you to the show, and we know that campaign finance reform dark money is a huge concern of yours, and we we see on Twitter that you had a pretty hilarious way to illustrate that with one infamous Anthony Scaramucci. Can you tell our listeners about what happened over the weekend? Yeah, well, on Halloween, we actually put out a... Uh, through a website that you can get to have some folks record personal messages. Mr. Scaramucci had recorded a message relating to our campaign. And, you know, he took it well, uh, certainly happy to have a little fun every now and then. He was good sport. We had paid $100 for him to do it, but sort of underscored, you know, Look, the fight of my career, and I think the challenge of our time really is the corrupting influence of money in our system. And so often you have money influencing the outcome of elections where we don't even know who's writing that check. So sort of like he didn't quite know what he was getting into. We use that to sort of underscore sort of the consequences of voices out there where you don't even know who's funding those voices. Governor, I want to ask you how you look at the the money and politics angle on your campaign in a season really defined by money and politics, even though the Democratic Party's rules around debates have emphasized a multitude of small dollar donors, it still seems to be very much about fundraising in a way that has adversely, I think, impacted the ability of the entire field to be heard. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And really, you know, and it's not just on the one hand, it's not just this election. It's ever since Citizens United, where people's voices feel like it doesn't even, you know, their voice doesn't even matter because it's all about the donors. And in some respects, I think the DNC going into this said, all right, well, we're not going to make it about the big dollar donors, but we're going to make it about the one dollar donors. But what the unintended consequences was you had campaign spending 60 to $80 uh, 
per $1 donor on Facebook and Google ads. So it actually kind of made it that much worse in some respects. And, and I think that, you know, it, it's always challenging when people turn around and say, well, this is really all about the money when there's at least one day every two years where we're all equal and that's on election day. And we've got to emphasize to folks that it's people that actually decide elections. It's not large corporations. It's not dark money groups and it's not the big donors. So, you know, the name of our book is, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. And the question we get most often and the part of the book people are most fascinated by is when we say we changed our mind on something. Now you you know, talk a lot about how you are the only Democrat who's won a state where Trump won the the popular vote. And so I'm wondering, as this experience of being in a red state, but being a blue governor, I'm thinking you probably have some of those. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening experiences or times where you've changed your mind on something. Do you have a story about that? Well, look, yeah, on the one hand, because I actually as a governor and in a state with a majority Republican legislature, I always have to try to either listen to people that might have different perspectives than me or indeed find compromise along the way to try to figure out ways to move things forward. So when we look at areas that I've changed my mind, you know, I could even think of from the beginning where I was thinking, well, we probably don't need another tax cut for businesses when tax foundation already says we have one of the best business climates for taxes, things like that. But in working with folks and hearing from small businesses, uh, just one example saying, well, if you're really looking at business equipment taxes, uh, the benefits don't go to those smaller businesses. So we're the ones that really need help. It's one example of many times where at least, you know, if the system's going to work, this notion of just strict purity of thought often is what makes it so that things don't get done, not so that things do get done. As I was reading about you, I came across some of similar themes. People described you as principled, but not particularly ideological, a bit of a micromanager, someone who asks really piercing questions of your team, that you are really committed to being a good governor first and foremost, and really committed to your family. And I just wonder how you see those qualities playing in a culture that would seem from our from our Twitter dialogue, at least, and certainly with our current president, not to value those tendencies. And I tend to believe at the end of the day, it's sort of like the Twitterverse isn't the real universe. You know, I begin with the base presumption that most people's lives are too busy, are hectic, are frantic to even care about politics, that they're more worried about, is my car going to break down or is my kid going to get sick? But the values that most people have really are the same, that no matter what we identify politically we want a safe community, decent job, a roof over our head, good schools, clean air, clean water, the belief you can do better for your next sort of that next generation than even yourself. And I think the values that I've tried to stress from sort of family and decency, I go back to my first state of the state when I got elected. Uh, legislature was about two-thirds Republican, and we we're really deeply divided at the time. And I had kids that are, were six, eight, and 10, which had been the youngest in 40 years in the state of Montana in the governor's residence. And during that first day of the state, 
like I shared that, you know, you're going to hear different noises from the office and the residence. That's the sound of young kids. And we as elective leaders have to recognize that our kids learn from our words and our deeds. I said back then, our kids are watching. And I believe that more true today than ever before. So I do think that, well, there may be the sort of what we re- read in Twitter and the daily conflicts. We've got to figure out a way to elevate this system if this system called representative democracy that's had a 243-year run is going to be able to continue. I mean, we got to recognize that no matter what happens out of this election, there's still going to be deep divides in this nation. And at some point, we've got to figure out ways to start healing those divides if we're really going to move together as one country. Well, the Twitterverse and the Washington, D.C. sort of political elite are definitely obsessed right now with impeachment. And I think the big question everybody is struggling with is how is that going to play in the 2020 presidential race? What are you hearing? Are you hearing concerns about impeachment as you're out there campaigning in the real world, not in the Twitterverse? Yeah, and it's interesting through uh, before Ukraine, probably in say probably 55, 60 meet and greets throughout Iowa as an example. Not once during questioning was impeachment or the Mueller report brought up. You know, it was more about 20% of rural hospitals being at risk of closing or concerned about is education being sufficiently funded or what job opportunities are along the way. So I think that at times, certainly the national discussion and sort of what's live on cable television is a bit disconnected with people's lives. Now, and I was not an impeachment fan. And in many respects, I sure wish we weren't at this point, for sure. Uh, But when sort of the chapter two of this came out with Ukraine, I mean, we vest the president uniquely with the power to speak on behalf of this country to other foreign leaders and to use the powers as it appears that he does is something that I think has, the inquiry has to go forward. Now, I'm not sure how that'll play politically, but I think it's something for sort of the institutions of democracy. It needs to go forward. And then I think that we also have to recognize, you know, as I said about the deep divides that, yeah, there's probably 30% of the country that thinks that uh, even if they read the transcript, that no, none of this could be true. This is all just to set up against Trump. So we've got to be, I hope that the way that this sort of unfolds is pretty judicious and thoughtful about it. Take care of what needs to be done and then move on. I imagine governing a state that has such a strong Trump contingency as you do, that you think a lot about the sources of those divides and how to bridge them. And I wonder what you think is a path forward. If we can, through the next election, move beyond the Trump presidency, what do you think starts to bring us back, at least to just like a common set of facts as Americans? Yeah, I sure hope we can get back to that at some point. Yeah, I'm the only uh, Democrat in the field that won in a Trump state. You know, he took Montana by 20. I won by four. 25 to 30 percent of my voters voted for Donald Trump. I think in part it 
is reflected by the leaders or the individuals that we have. I mean, there are folks that in Montana that I may disagree with philosophically, deeply disagree with, but at least I try to listen and show them respect for differing opinions. I worry when you mention sort of a common set of facts that I worry that now people can get their own facts from whatever sort of avenue they want, be it from cable television or Twitter or Facebook feeds. And how we can bridge those parts is more challenging than at least how we can recognize that even in a time of deep division, we share more in common than what really separates us as people in this country. So we've talked about impeachment and other issues that are the average Joe voter is concerned with. But what topic do you think is not getting enough attention in this Democratic primary? There are some topics that are getting a ton. Every debate starts with a good 45 minutes on health care. And that's definitely important to voters and to the country. But what do you think is not getting talked about with the attention it deserves? Well, I'll give a couple as an example. One really is a corrupting influence of money in the system. Like you look at before the Citizens United case, about 2% of all outside spending was from groups that don't disclose the donors. This last election, it was over half. A billion dollars has been spent during that time where we don't even know where that money's coming from. And I know that, look, in 10 years of public office, on the one hand, I've never had somebody come up to me and say, Bullock, there's just not enough money in the system. You know, but by the same token, those that think it's a fringe issue, you know, if we're really going to make movement on everything from healthcare costs to climate to gun violence to income inequality, I think part of it we have to recognize the rules really are and the incentives are often about the campaign donors, and we have to change that. So that's one. Another is, is that, you know, and I'm somebody that had worked my way through college and borrowed my way through law school, ended up having to pay off, in today's terms, about $175,000 of debt. We have to do things to make college more affordable and to ease the student debt burden. But I don't think there's enough talk through this Democratic primary either that about two-thirds of people in this country have no college degree. And there's not enough discussion about what we're doing for them to make certain that they have a fair path, you know, a fair shot at a better life. Those are a couple of the areas that I don't, don't think are being discussed enough. You know, I'm a used to be Republican of the more like John McCain, John Huntsman variety. And I think the way you are portrayed in the media makes your appeal to someone like me obvious. My husband and I, my husband who's more conservative than I am, we we both could joyfully vote for you in a Democratic primary. I'm wondering if you feel like the way you're being portrayed in the media as as the person who would bring us in is giving short shrift to areas where you truly are quite progressive as well. I'm thinking of your leadership on public lands and climate, for example. And I just want to ask if you would speak to people who are far more to the left than I am about why a Bullock candidate makes sense. The core of the word progressive is actually making progress in people's lives. Like we've done that with 
affordability of college education. We have the fourth lowest tuition and fees in the nation. I've stood strong for equal rights and civil rights for all, for voting rights and same-day voter registration. I've taken steps in so many different ways where the difference between being a governor and even a governor with Republican legislature is I can't just rely on speeches, right? I have to get things done that will make a meaningful impact in people's lives. So I would put my progressive record up against literally anybody in this field when it comes to accomplishing things. And then on the sort of what might appeal more to you, it's, it's like, look, people have an expectation that government can work. I don't compromise the values that I hold, but I try to find ways to actually elevate areas where we can find commonality to make government, it won't solve all the problems, but have a meaningful impact and a positive impact in people's lives. Well, Governor Bullock, best of luck out there on the campaign trail. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us, and we'd love to have you back anytime. Sure enjoyed it, Sarah and Beth. Thanks so much for having me today. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? I would like to just rave for a minute about Maleficent. We watched Maleficent, the first movie, on Friday night and then took the girls to see the second one, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, on Saturday morning. It was fantastic. I could not ask for more from a children's movie. We took both my eight-year-old and four-year-old. Both of them. They are a delight. My mom really instilled in me a love of fractured fairy tales, which I think is one of her greatest contributions to my life, honestly, because I think it gives you that sense of like, question everything. Think about how somebody else, when you're able to say, but what did the witch feel? You know, you're developing Mm -hmm. a good sense of things. To be able to say, I've been told this story the same way forever. Let me look at it in a new way. I think it's important. So I love the way they have shaken up the Sleeping Beauty story in general. I love how complicated the women characters are and the men, too. Really, there are not super pure heroes and villains. Nothing about it feels gender stereotyped. It has really good lessons about the power of propaganda. There are so many different versions of love on display in these stories. There is intense drama and struggle without it being scary. And none of it is too on the nose. You don't feel like you're there to learn a lesson. It's just a really beautiful, absorbing story throughout both movies. I just can't recommend it enough. Well, we watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids because I was looking for a throwback from my childhood that wasn't too scary for us to end our tech Shabbat, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. And can I just say that piece holds up. It was so good and entertaining. I probably hadn't seen it since I was a kid. It's so fun because it's not CGI. Like, you know, they built the like giant nail and the floorboards and stuff, which I think make it makes it really fun to watch nowadays. And it just was really cute, not scary, fun. I loved it. So Honey, I Shrunk the Kids holds up, P.S. So we ended um, our tech Shabbat with a movie. So a couple weeks ago, I finished Tiffany Schlain's 24-6, where she argues to um, turn off the screens one day a week 
sort of like a Shabbat. So she calls it a tech Shabbat. So on Friday evening, we had friends over. We had dinner. We turned our phones off and we did not turn them on again until sundown on Saturday night. Um, And this is the second week we've done it. And I absolutely love it. My children pitched a little bigger fits this time. They're struggling in the transition. Uh, So is my husband. But I love it. And I find myself even throughout the week, like getting ready for it to get here, ready to turn off my phone and be away from it. We use our home phone, which is hilarious. Like I had to call my mom to get a number because it was on my phone. And I had to call my friend on her cell phone and be like, hi, this is my home phone number. You'll have to call and leave a message if we don't answer. Um, But I'm really enjoying it. You know, the kids played. I got so much done. Um, Last week, we went for a hike. I'm just really, really enjoying the moment and like building in a ritual where the phones are gone. I think that's lovely. I took Friday and was almost unplugged the whole day and really didn't use my phone much Saturday or Sunday either. I just hit a real burnout wall last week and was looking at the calendar, recognizing if I don't take some time now, there's not going to be any time to take. And so I distanced myself from pretty much everything. I checked in enough to not feel anxious. I just decided I'm going to follow my instincts for a couple of days. So if I feel a little bit nervous about, am I missing something important? I'm going to pick up the phone to look and assure myself that I am not. And then I'm going to put it away again. And we did lots of housework and we had lots of family time. Um, I noticed that I wanted like not a lot of lights on whenever I was by myself. Like I think I might just be overstimulated in every way. And by about the middle of the day Saturday, I felt so different than I have in a long time. It is amazing what just minimal unplugging will do. And I imagine if you incorporate this every single week, I'm so excited to hear the long-term effects of this for y'all. There's something about knowing you can't text in particular because I've taken social media um, time off. Like I gave up social media for Lent two years in a row. But there's something about the the texting, not having access to the texting that was really, I think is a really key component of it. Like instead of thinking about what I want to say to a friend about last night, I just have to be in the house with my family because I don't have any options to communicate about what happened yesterday or what's going to happen to tomorrow, you know? And I think that that part is something I sort of didn't anticipate, but I really enjoyed. I did make my stepfather bring me the local paper because I have to, I like now it's just so part of my, part of my routine to read the paper and do the crossword puzzle, but I do it on my iPad. So I was like, I gotta have something. Um, but it was kind of fun to do it on the crossword puzzle. I mean, I think we got it right. The New York Times crossword apps tells me if I get it wrong, but the paper just has to take my pencil marks and not correct me, which I don't know. Maybe that's not so bad after all. Well, we are going to be on the road the rest of the week. We will try to share a lot of that journey with you because technology is neither good nor bad. It just is, right? We're going to try to use it in a fun way while we're on the road. So be sure to follow along on Instagram for that trip. Cannot wait to see many of you in Dallas on Friday. And we will be here for another podcast then as well. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. 
Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 